Uh, If you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Uh, Those black hardcover Bibles that Dana just referenced, page 981, and then we'll flip over to 982. That's where you'll find uh, today's today's text. Uh, As we're rapidly closing out the summer and kicking off the fall, we've got about three weeks left uh, in this series we've been doing called American Gods. Uh, And in each of these seven weeks, the seven-part series, uh, we look at one of what are known as the cardinal sins or the seven deadly sins. Uh, So far, we've been able to consider uh, lust, sloth, wrath or anger, and greed. Uh, As we walk through these, we're looking at them really from these two different vantage points. Just want to remind you of that this morning as we're getting back into this. Uh, We're looking at this from a cultural standpoint. Where do these sins exist in our time, in our place? But more importantly is the personal level, not just where these sins exist out there in our culture, but where do they exist, where are they prone to exist in here, in our own lives? Because as difficult and and painful as it is, we really believe it's good and necessary for God to expose those things in us uh, so that we can come face to face with those, those things, repent of them, and then experience this transforming grace from God that we might do as the Apostle John says in one of his letters. He says, dear children, beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. And we want to do that in whatever era we live in, but for us in 21st century America, we want to be those who keep ourselves from from idols. This morning, as you've heard Casey share, we're examining the sin of gluttony, the sin of gluttony. And gluttony is, uh, among Christians, perhaps uh, the most excused, uh, the most ignored, or even at times acceptable, respectable of these seven deadly sins. So we can, at least in some measure, perceive the danger of pride and the danger of lust. And we can see the the destruction that is wrought by greed and the destruction that's wrought by wrath. But is gluttony really that bad? Is it really that destructive? Only if there's an inseparable connection between the physical and the spiritual. And from start to finish, that's exactly what the Word of God claims that there's an inseparable connection between the physical and the spiritual. And we're going to look at one example of that this morning from one of Paul's letters, specifically his letter to the church at Philippi. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love, Philippians chapter 3. I'll start in verse 17 and then read through uh, the end of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Gracious God and Son of God, Jesus Christ, we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so in this moment, this morning, make us hungry for this, your word. 
that it may nourish us not only today, but each day in the ways of eternal life. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who called himself the very bread of life. Amen. The word uh, gluttony comes from a Latin word that means to gulp down. So it refers to an excessive consumption, and really it can be used to refer to an excessive consumption of anything. It can be used of uh, media, of entertainment. Uh, We sometimes call people a glutton for punishment if they gulp down difficult and undesirable tasks. They always are putting themselves in that position. But the most common use of the word gluttony, and the one we'll focus on today, has to do with the excessive consumption or an inordinate desire for food and drink. And the real issue, as it always is, as it always is in the way of Jesus, has to do with our hearts. So Paul's phrase here in Philippians 3 is is this all-encompassing summary of it, speaking about these men and women who he calls enemies of the cross of Christ. He says in Philippians 3.19, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. That's the real root of the sin of gluttony. And the question really is, do we worship and serve the God of our belly, or are we devoted to the one true God and therefore serve him in all of the aspects of our lives, including the ways that we eat and the ways that we drink? So with the rest of our time this morning, uh, we're just going to compare and contrast these two gods, really these two kingdoms. Food and drink in the kingdom of the belly compared and contrasted to food and drink in the kingdom of God. So first, let's talk about food and drink in the kingdom of the belly. Uh, In the late 6th century, uh, Pope Gregory I surveyed various negative examples in Scripture, and he from them extrapolated this list of five different ways a person, any person, in that day or ours, might commit the sin of gluttony. So for one... Uh, We can eat too expensively. We can always be those who are seeking delicacies in our eating. And Gregory saw an example of this in the Israelites in the wilderness. Uh, They're out wandering through the wilderness. God is providing for them. He's sustaining them with manna from heaven and even meat occasionally. But they complain about the lack of variety of foods and the delicacy. Uh, At one point even, they complain to Moses and say they prefer to return to slavery They'd they'd want to go back and be enslaved because at least in Egypt there were leeks and cucumbers and melons and onions and things like that. Which, if you're going to pick a food to go back to slavery for, maybe, maybe not that. At least for me, that wouldn't be it. That's one. Two, we can be too picky. We can be too demanding with our eating. And we can have this desire in the pickiness that it, that it stimulate us every time we eat in a certain way. The two sons of the priest Eli the book of 1 Samuel, uh, they break, we read in Scripture, the acceptable practice of how a priest was to receive his portion of sacrificial meat. And they demanded instead a different portion. They were picky about the portion of meat that they received. That, among other things, was the reason that they were ultimately rejected by God. Their household, their line of priests was rejected by God, and God ultimately put them to death. That's a fantastic and underutilized example for parents with their kids. Like when your kid goes, can you cut the crust off my peanut butter and jelly? You can say, you know who else I bet wanted the crust cut off their peanut butter and jelly? (laughs) Sons of Eli. (laughs) Did not go well for them. Three, third, 
Uh, gluttony is when we eat too soon. There's a time component that can be part of that. We eat at the wrong time. We always want to eat. We always want to jump the gun and eat a meal before it's mealtime. Uh, in 1 Samuel 14, King Saul commands his army not to eat anything until the enemy has been defeated. Uh, his son, Jonathan, doesn't hear him say that. But, and so he's wandering through the woods. He finds some honey and he eats it. And he becomes the recipient of this curse that Paul pr- pronounced upon anyone who would eat before the enemy was defeated. Number four, we can eat with too much eagerness. Too much eagerness. Even if we eat appropriate amounts at the appropriate times, our lives and our actions can be dictated by what we eat and drink. Esau, one of the best examples in Scripture of this whole sin of gluttony, and this particular example is Esau. He was so hungry at one point that he sold his birthright. He traded his life, he traded his future to his brother Jacob for a morsel of meat. And then lastly, number five, and the one that we most commonly associate with the word gluttony and the sin of gluttony, we eat too much. Uh, We excessively consume. We eat and drink far more than we actually need. And we don't just do that occasionally. We do that all the time. It's common in our minds, if you're familiar with Scripture, if you grew up in the church and you've heard of these things, uh, you think of the the ancient city of Sodom. And we we commonly associate that in our minds with sexual sin, the sins of lust. But fascinatingly, the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16, he refers to Sodom's sin as these four things. Pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and not aiding the poor and needy. For four of the seven deadly sins, right? Pride, gluttony, prosperous ease, sloth, and not aiding the poor and needy, greed. But lust is not mentioned in there. Now, as we consider gluttony on this cultural level, it's important for us this morning, it truly is, to clarify something. That gluttony does not always result in obesity, and that obesity is not always the result of gluttony. Last October, uh, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, released a new report showing that almost 40% of American adults, 20% of American adolescents, qualify, classify as obese. And both of those are the highest rates that have ever been recorded in the history of the United States. Um, That's troubling, and that's something for us to care about and to be concerned about for fellow image bearers of God that we live in and among. Often, there is this connection between obesity and gluttony, but what I want to make sure you understand this morning is not necessarily. Not necessarily. And I say that to you this morning for two reasons. First, is that there are men and women and perhaps even some of you who are here in this room this morning, who struggle with your weight because of metabolic issues, because of medical issues. And if you are that person, if you know someone like that, you know the burden of that and the potential and the reality of shame that comes with that is already more than enough. And so people like this, we don't need the assumptions, we don't need the judgment added to that. We need to be really clear as people about which one of these things is a sin and which one is not. Gluttony is a sin. Obesity in and of itself is not. It might be caused by sin. It is not in and of itself. The second reason I say that to you is because on the other hand, you might be a person who's generally healthy and content with the number that you read on your scale. 
But don't assume if that's you that you are immune and free from, therefore, the sins of gluttony. You can practice any one or all five of those expressions of gluttony that I just shared with you and not have the results show up on a scale. In my studies this week, I came across this 1896 painting by a man named Albert Anker. It's called Excess. And for whatever reason, it shows up in a lot of different books and textbooks about the sin of of gluttony. I had to examine uh, this painting by Albert Anker very closely. Why is that? Because apart from the crazy amount of alcohol on the table in the picture, the rest of the table looks a lot like what my dinner table looks like most nights of the week. Right? Right? multiple kinds of food that we pass around and share. It looked very similar. Our, our culture is numb to this sin largely because of the availability of everything, uh, because of the relatively easy and inexpensive ways that you and I can procure whatever we want to eat and drink at about any time we want it. But it's not just our culture. It's, it's me, and maybe it's you. I'm numb to that. And rather than blame culture, I would have you this morning consider this, that all that the availability or the inexpensiveness has done is give expression, is give an outlet to the idolatry that we're already inclined to in our hearts. It's easier to find comfort in your favorite food than it is to find comfort in Christ. It's easier to seek escape in alcohol or to seek escape in binge eating something that you like than to find refuge in Christ. It's a more immediate, tangible result. It doesn't require that you change anything about the way that you live. It doesn't require any sacrifice. It doesn't require self-denial. So yes, obesity is a dangerous epidemic in our society. So is gluttony. But as one author puts it very helpfully, the true danger of gluttony is not that it will lead to flabby waistlines, but that it will lead to flabby souls. If it truly is, as Paul says here, the God of the belly, an idol, then this idol is as dangerous as every other, any other false god, false deity that exists in the, in the cosmos. And Paul says several things here in this text to emphasize that the kingdom of this counterfeit God will never satisfy us, that all it will do is enslave us and destroy us. As you've heard in verse 18, Paul calls these people enemies of the cross of Christ. That's really strong language, and not language that we typically associate with the sin of gluttony. We, We tend to reserve that for other kinds of sin. But the truth is, is that we cannot worship God and idols. Jesus says very clearly, we cannot serve God and money. And the same thing's true here. We cannot serve God and our belly. So if we are driven by our physical hunger, if we are driven by our appetites, we are setting ourselves up as enemies of God. It's debated among scholars whether Paul in this text is writing these words directed to the Judaizers, address, you know, referring to the Judaizers, Um, They would be strict, legalistic interpreters of the Mosaic law. Uh, They would be those who placed heavy burdens on people, even after coming to faith in Christ, that they needed to keep these strict dietary restrictions that were laid out in that law. Or, if, if Paul's referring to them, or if he's referring to those that were reactionaries against the Judaizers, those who, in the name of gospel freedom, gave free rein to their appetites without concern, 
And they essentially adopted the philosophy of like, now that I'm free in Christ, whatever feels good, do it. Whatever tastes good, eat it whenever you want it, as much of it as you want. Uh, Personally, I think the evidence in this text makes a stronger case that it's the latter of those two groups, not the Judaizers, but the the free reign reactionaries against them. Either way, though, either way, both are enemies of the cross of Christ. Both are rejecting the gospel. One rejects grace and seeks to earn favor from God by the things that they eat or do not eat. The other is attempting to use God, use a false concept, a false notion of God's grace to actually serve the God of their belly, when actually instead we're meant to use food and drink in service of the one true God. So a related side note to this, um, be skeptical whenever you encounter uh, a self-proclaimed quote-unquote biblical diet. You've seen some of these books or some of there's like campaigns about these things that happen every now and then. Every few years, someone writes a book. They claim to crack the code. A bunch of them have to do with Daniel and his diet in Babylon, uh, water and and vegetables in Babylon instead of eating from the king's table. Um, I actually prefer the Peter plan. It's a a side hustle I'm going to do if I ever need like a lot of money and want to dupe a lot of people into something. Uh, The Peter plan, Jesus tells Peter in Acts, get up, kill, and eat. And that sounds a lot more delicious to me. It's actually just as quote-unquote biblical because you're taking all of those things out of context, right? The point is you cannot earn favor from God by what you eat or what you don't eat. Uh, one way to reject the gospel, one way to set yourself up as an enemy of Christ is to think that you can. As Paul points out here, the end, the end for enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction. So regardless, this is the sobering piece, regardless of how we reject the gospel, how we reject the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, it means that we are giving ourselves over to the fracture and the corruption of sin, that we are refusing the redeeming work of Christ. And so we will, if we do that, find ourselves spiritually and physically destroyed by sin rather than being saved from it. And in light of that, and I hope you heard this as we read it earlier, do you hear Paul's compassion in his words here? This is why. It's a big deal. Enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. So he says, as I've often told you and tell you now, even with tears, he's pleading. He's begging these men and women not to reject the grace of God. Do we judge gluttons? Do we judge those who indulge the sin of gluttony or do we weep for them? In any of these matters of bodily consecration, one of these rhythms of grace that we've looked at, how we eat, how we exercise, how we steward our sexuality, because these things are all so externally perceivable, they are among the easiest to become self-righteous and judgmental about. Instead, As Paul commends his own example and the example of others here, follow his example and weep. Because it's not just the state of a person's cholesterol or blood glucose levels. It's the state of their soul. It's not just the risk of diabetes or heart issues or liver or kidney issues. It's the risk of rejecting the one true God. And this phrase that Paul says here, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. That represents the most backward way to live. You, friend, were made for glory. You are crowned with glory and honor, the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 8. 
That is who you are, who you have been created to be in the eyes of God. And to embrace a counterfeit kingdom, to embrace an idol, is to trade that glory for shame. It's to trade that glory for the lie that you are not worthily and beautifully made in the image of God. And then, as Paul says here, to to glory in the shame itself, to boast in the lie that the God of the belly is more satisfying somehow than the God who made you for his own glory and with his own glory, that is the essence of death, not life. Like Esau, and this is the real the real danger of gluttony. Like Esau, we are prone to sell our birthright. We are prone to throw away who we have been made to be for a morsel of meat. But it is the least satisfying, utterly enslaving trade you can make. Don't sell your birthright. And like Paul does here, weep for those who do. If that's food and drink in the kingdom of the belly, then second, Let's talk about food and drink in the kingdom of God. Food and drink in the kingdom of God. Uh, The real crux of this contrast comes at the end of verse 19 and the beginning of verse 20. It says, For those who embrace the kingdom of the belly, the the enemies of the cross of Christ, their minds are set on earthly things. Then the beginning of verse 20, But, Paul says, For us, for we who worship the one true God, our citizenship is in heaven. Eating and drinking uh, is so routine, it's so ordinary, that we are liable to miss the real opportunity of it. But food and drink really have the ability to marry our physical experience with our spiritual experience in this life. What do I mean by that? I mean that for those of us who trust in the finished work of Jesus, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's not just a future for you, that is your present. Paul says your citizenship is now in heaven. But as we see in Scripture, as we learn from the pages of the New Testament, the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand now. It's already, and it's powerfully at work. But the fullness of it, the consummation of it, happens only when, as Paul talks about here, our long-awaited Savior, Jesus Christ, comes again. Life in the present, life in between the already and the not yet, it is this amazing and frustrating and beautiful and tragic experience. It's a crazy mixture of all of that. We see and we rejoice in how the kingdom of God has advanced, how it has pushed back what is dark in the world, how so much has and so many people have been reconciled to God through the work of Christ. At the very same time, we see and we lament how much of the darkness still exists and how much in our earth and in our world and among our friends and family members, how much remains unreconciled to God. If you're tuned into that, if you don't kind of go numb and calloused and check out, if you remain engaged in the real experience of life between the already and the not yet, you will have inevitably some very high highs and some very low lows. Maybe in the same week, maybe in the same day. And the collective experience of that, if you've felt that, can be exhausting. So we need the hope 
of the gospel. We need regular and constant reminders of what Christ already has done and what he is doing and will do. Our eating and our drinking have the ability to do that. They have the ability to be part of our constant recalibration, to remind us of what's true, to solidify us in our experience of life in between the already and the not yet. How? Through both feasting and fasting. Through feasting and fasting. And citizens of the kingdom of God, they are those who both feast and fast. Throughout the entire scriptures, Old and New Testaments, we see the people of God commanded to do both of these things. We see the Son of God, Jesus Christ, living and dwelling among us, do both of these things. He fasts for 40 days in the wilderness. And though he's neither a glutton nor a drunkard, he's accused of being both because he shows up at parties. He shows up at feasts, and while he's there, he eats and he drinks. He's, in other words, not a very good adherent of Daniel's diet. Why do the people of God, why does Jesus feast and fast? We feast to rejoice in the provision of God. We fast as a reminder of our dependence upon the provision of God. But all of that, in our feasting and in our fasting, all of it's worship, all of it's meant to fix our eyes on the one true God and on his work in the world and in our lives. In fasting, our physical hunger reminds us of the deeper longing that we have for Jesus, of our hunger and our thirst for his righteousness. In our feasting, the abundance of it, the indulgence of it, points to the abundance, the lavishness of God's grace. He doesn't just give us what we need when it comes to grace. He lavishes it upon us. We don't just long for Christ to be our satisfaction. He is our satisfaction. And he's filled our lives, and he's filled our hearts, and he's filled our mouths with good things. Even more, feasting and fasting grounds our present lives in this already and not yet of God's kingdom. So think about this. The fulfillment of the kingdom of God, depicted in the book of Revelation, is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. The full experience of our salvation, in other words, is you and I and those who trust in the work of Christ feasting with Jesus forever. So if all that you and I do is fast, if the whole 30 becomes the whole 365, we minimize the already of the kingdom of God. Because this is a present and powerful kingdom. The darkness is being pushed back. So don't eat all the time as if you are crushed under the weight of sin when Jesus truly has accomplished your salvation. When Jesus has risen from the dead, when, he's, when he has the power and is employing the power to subject all things to himself. Don't forget that Jesus has secured your salvation. Eat and drink as a citizen of the kingdom of the king of kings. On the other hand, if all we do, if all you do is fast and overeat and indulge all the time, you minimize the not yet of the kingdom of God. Yes, the kingdom of God is present and working, but we can never overrealize it. And this is why we fast. This is why we're called not to be gluttons. Because if this life is all there is, then by all means, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If this life is all there is, there's no resurrection, if there's no fulfillment of the kingdom of God, be a glutton. Eat and drink for tomorrow you die. But our best life isn't now. 
And as Paul points out, gifts that they are, these are still the lowliest bodies that you and I will ever have. Beautiful and glorious that it is, this earth is the lowliest home that we will ever have. Indeed, it's not our ultimate home. Our citizenship is in heaven. So don't eat and drink as if this life is as good as it gets. Don't forget in your eating and drinking that there's more redemption for Jesus to do, that things still are not the way they're meant to be and the way that they will be when our long-awaited Savior returns and comes for his own. Practically speaking then, rather than, and we've looked at this throughout this series, we, we need more than just the self-denial, like more than just the don't be a glutton. We need a, a more compelling vision of what we're called into that's good and right and aligns with the way that God has created this earth. So rather than simply seeking to avoid the sin of gluttony, what I would call you to is to build rhythms of feasting and fasting into your life, into your yearly calendar. And let the church calendar, the Christian year, the Christian calendar, be your friend in this. The aim of the Christian calendar uh, is not to be this legalistic formula by which we earn favor from God by the things we do and don't do and when we do them. It's meant to be a helpful guide to form in us healthy rhythms. And so Lent every year is a season of fasting. Christmas and Epiphany are seasons of feasting. Good Friday is a fast. Easter is a feast. The season that we find ourselves in right now, it's called ordinary time. Ordinary time is a great opportunity to reconsider what normal, what ordinary eating and drinking means and looks like. What's a normal breakfast for you? And therefore, what would a feast breakfast look like for you? And also, what would a fast breakfast look like for you? Same for other meals. Same for snacks and for desserts and for alcohol and for coffee and all the other things that we, that we consume. Beyond the Christian calendar, though, you can fast, you can feast anytime. You don't have to do that just when the seasons of the Christian year tell you to. So if it's been a long time, or if you've never fasted, consider fasting soon for a day, or if that's too much even for a meal. And if that's brand new to you as a practice, or if it's really a convoluted topic because of some things that have happened to you in your life in the past, uh, email, call myself, Pastor John, our staff. We would love to put some resources in your hands that would walk through that in a helpful way uh, with you. On the other hand, if it's been a while since you've had a good feast, plan one. Plan one soon with family. Plan one with friends. A good, drawn-out, feast-like meal. When it is received in thanksgiving to God, when it is shared with people that you love, it is good for your soul. It's good for your soul. It's literally a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a taste of the kingdom of God. And all of this, collectively, this is the opportunity of food and drink. And this is the power of the connection between our physical experience of eating and drinking and the spiritual experience of being a citizen of this already and not yet kingdom of God. And that's why, that's why the, the corruption that gluttony is is such an affront not only to our bodies but to our very souls. As Paul concludes 
this passage. This world, this universe, and everything in it belongs to Jesus. All things are subjected to him. And so consider this, friends. We eat and drink not because tomorrow we die. We eat and drink because tomorrow we rise by the power of Jesus. Eat and drink in light of that. Feast and fast in light of that. Recalibrate your sense of normal and ordinary eating and drinking in light of that. And if you're like me and so many others that I talk to here on a regular basis, if you constantly lament that you don't have enough time in your life to focus in on your relationship with Jesus, then this morning consider that three times a day, seven days a week, there is probably already built into the rhythms of your life a moment to literally taste and see that God is good. To be reminded of and to rejoice in what Christ has done. To long for Christ to come again in all that is not yet done. So may we never eat and drink mindlessly or obsessively or gluttonously. Instead, as citizens of God's kingdom, may we eat and drink with a present awareness and a feeling sense of our very salvation through Jesus. And whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, may we do it all to the glory of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the one seated on your throne as we sang this morning. All things are subjected to you. And we pray that as we and all things are subjected to you, we would use our lives, we would think about and utilize food and drink in service of our worship of you and not the other way around. May you be our God in every moment of our lives. May we not worship the God of our belly. And may we see in our eating and our drinking the real opportunity it is to both rejoice in the work you have done, to long for the work you have not yet done. Give us by your grace, this power, and even now as we come to this table, which truly is the foretaste, the glimpse of the wedding feast of the Lamb, the meal we will share with you forever. May you, by your Spirit, strengthen us, nourish us, sustain us in your grace. We pray that in your name. Amen.